Our scripture passage today uh, is Matthew 10, 16 through 23. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think every male staff this week has gotten a haircut and or shaved. That was not planned. Apparently God just really wanted us to clean up this week. If you've been with us for some time, you know that it is our practice to walk through books of the Bible. But we don't walk through them uninterrupted. Our, our, Our goal is to walk through them in seasons. So we've been walking through Matthew from January to Easter. This is our third year to wherever we end up at Easter, we we pick up in uh in January of the next year. And we do this so that we can we can you know interact with all parts of scripture, all the whole counsel of the word of God in a year, but still be faithful to walk through whole books. So this week we are stepping back into Matthew, Matthew chapter 10. And we have titled this series, Gentle and Lowly, as you heard Skylar talk about. This is named after the, the book, of course, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, that we as a church are gonna be walking through Lord willing, starting next Sunday. And it's really fun for me to see the way that God's providence has unfolded here because we decided in 2019 that we were gonna walk through a book as a church. And it was on our 2020 goals. And like many of our 2020 goals, we had to hit pause on that. And we, we just said we were going to do a book. We didn't even know what it was. And then in, in the fall, we started talking about it again. And I think it was Robert who really put forward, Robert Jackson, the idea of going through Gentle and Lowly. And so some of the elders read it, and we decided this is a great book to go through. Then I started going through all the texts that were going to be taught in 2021, from January to December. And we realized in God's providence that the very text that Gentle and Lowly was written from I will be teaching in February. And so it just I, I, there's this sense that God really wants us to hear something. I'm certainly doing my best to listen. I hope, I hope we all are listening to what God would have for us in the season. There are copies of the book, as Skylar said, in the lobby you can buy for $10, which is cheaper than online, but I think Kindle is $5, so you may want to do that. But our passage this morning, as we go back to Matthew 11, is a passage about persecution about the persecution that is coming for those who devote themselves to living a godly life in Christ Jesus. Now, if you look at the way Matthew chapter 10 is 
is shaped. It, you know, we, where we were, I'm sure all of you remember where we left off last Easter. Jesus sends out the 12. And this is immediately following it. So if you only read Matthew, it can feel a little bit like this is one talk by Jesus. When in reality, I'm pretty convinced these are two separate talks. So Jesus sends out the 12 and this is a different sending that he's doing at this point. Both Mark and Luke, they separate these passages and the, these sending uh, speeches by Jesus in their, in their gospels. And in 5 through 15, which precedes our text today, the, Jesus is sending these disciples to a small geographic area. And he's telling them, you don't even need to bring provisions. This is close by. He's telling them, only speak with Jewish people. But in our passage, this seems to be a larger geographic area, an area that, a mission that they do need to bring provisions on. And they, they do interact with Gentiles and they are inevitably going to, uh, going to endure persecution. So what I, I think... Matthew's doing he's putting two similar sermons by Jesus together that talk about sending out in the persecution that people who are sent specifically these disciples but as we'll see their application for all Christians to come how we will endure persecution if we are sent by Jesus and I, I feel like I need to have a long pause here and say that I do not feel in any way uh, qualified to talk to any group of Christians about persecution. (laughs) I mean, you think about what our brothers and sisters are enduring in the global East and the global South and and places like North Korea and China. I'm just not qualified. (laughs) But that's, you know, that's why we work through passages, you know, of the Bible like we do, because I would skip this. (laughs) I think it was up, if it was up to me. But that's not the way that we should do it. So we are, I I feel like with great hesitation, we will Uh, in this church talk about persecution. I think we experience so little persecution that in the American West, or the the global West, and specifically here, we begin to not even really know what persecution is or isn't. It begins to be this thing that is kind of hard to define and kind of hard to point at and know whether that really is persecution or not. Probably about 10 years ago, maybe, I was in Little Rock for something, and I was near the Bill Clinton Presidential Library. And I don't care what party you are, if I'm around your presidential library, I'll probably come visit. And I went to the Bill Clinton Presidential Library, and they had this whole room that was devoted to the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And the title above that room was President Under Persecution. I remember thinking, I don't think persecution is the right word. Maybe prosecution. Like it just doesn't fit there. You know, that, that's not per unjust persecution for just being who we are. So in the absence of persecution, we, we tend to not really understand, I don't think, how to, how to apply it appropriately because we don't experience persecution like we have in this passage. We, we don't experience persecution like our brothers do in China and North Korea and Iran. And please hear me, I'm very thankful that we don't experience that kind of persecution. I, I don't desire persecution. I don't wish it on anybody. I, I know I, I say this a lot when this kind of stuff comes up. I'm, I'm so thankful to live in the United States of America. I, I'm deeply thankful for the religious freedom that we get. I'm deeply thankful for all the protection that we get that we can just be able to worship this way without any threat of persecution or prosecution. 
but we have to acknowledge that this, this is a privileged status that, that we enjoy. This is, the, this is the exception, not the norm, in the history of Christianity and all throughout the globe today. And I think it's reasonable to think that should Jesus tarry, should he wait another 500,000, 2,000 years, I don't think there will probably be something called the United States of America. And I say that just to say that every day that we enjoy this religious freedom that we do is a gracious gift of God. We should be deeply thankful and it should cause us to pray for all those around the world who don't enjoy this kind of, uh, this kind of freedom and protection from the persecution that we see in this passage. But I think that if we've learned anything this year, it's that things can change fast. I think there will be a day where all of a sudden, seemingly all of a sudden, the the laws that protect us won't exist anymore and we need to be prepared to understand how to to process it and how to handle a a world where we no longer have all of these protections that we have now. So I just want to walk through this and think about in the event that we join the rest of global Christianity in the past and current and we lose power and are hated by those who have power, how do we then process that reality? So the first thing that we see as we walk through this passage is that persecution will happen. Persecution will happen. This is, I'm gonna read Matthew 10, 16a, and then 17 and 18. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So Jesus' immediate audience, remember, is the disciples and, and the apostles. And these are the people who in the first century would bring the gospel all over the known world, and they would be slaughtered. They would be slaughtered in the streets, they would be slaughtered in the synagogues, they would be slaughtered in public amphitheaters orchestrated by the governors and the kings. So everything that Jesus is saying would happen to these people, we know from history, that's exactly what happened. All but one of the apostles were brutally murdered because of their faith in Jesus Christ. John's the only one who who lived to an old age, but we know he was boiled alive and didn't die and then he was banished Uh, before he was allowed to live out his days, probably in Ephesus. So it's not like John had a cakewalk. And then if you go, if you've ever been to St. Peter's Basilica in in the Vatican, if you're looking at it, aligning the top of that building designed by Michelangelo are are the apostles, not all the apostles, but uh, some chosen apostles holding the instrument that killed them. So they're holding crosses and knives and lances and stones. One's holding a, a saw, Jesus knew what was going to happen to them and he's preparing them for that day. But he's not only preparing them, he's preparing many Christians who would join the ranks of these apostles and these disciples who would have to endure persecution, even persecution unto death. And I said this in the beginning, but I'm really clear what this type of persecution is that Jesus is addressing. This is not persecution from overposting on Facebook. This is not persecution from being a self-righteous employee. This is not persecution from storming the Capitol building. This is persecution that comes from loving Jesus Christ and endeavoring to live a fruitful and faithful life to him. That's the kind of persecution that Jesus is addressing here. And so Jesus says as they are sent out, and I think to all of us, that we are sheep among wolves. 
So people make a lot out about sheep being dumb. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a secondary application there because sheep walk to the wolves and we walk to the wolves, but that would be secondary. I think the primary application, the primary point that Jesus is trying to make is that sheep are powerless. Sheep are vulnerable in this world. God in his providence, I think, has allowed Christians to, some Christians to have power. Uh, again, he's allowed us to be protected, but this is the exception. This isn't the, the rule. By and large, Christians who are sent out are sent out powerless. They're sent out as sheep. This is why Charles Spurgeon, he said, the only weapons of Christians are that they are weaponless. So not only are we powerless sheep, Jesus says then we're sent out into a world of wolves. So wolves have teeth, wolves have claws. And I imagine the disciples understanding vulnerable, powerless, dangerous. Okay, I hear you, we're sheep as wolves. What's the next part of the plan, Jesus? That's it, you endure. That's the plan, you endure. You stand firm. And we know that that this kind of persecution, even though we're protected from it, th- this is going to be true at su- some extent of all Christians all over the world because Paul says, and he, he doesn't limit this in any way in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I was thinking about it this week, just it's kind of, it's kind of odd, like all Christians. Okay, I get if there's a really evil regime but by and large, Christians, I think, are nice people. Like, why is there this guarantee that all Christians will be persecuted? And, and especially in our kind of safe atmosphere today. The reason is because the core of Christianity and the core of sim- sinful humanity will always be at odds with each other. Now, I want to say that one more time. The core of Christianity and the core of sinful humanity will always be at odds with one another. This is how John Piper describes it. He says there's such tension between the message and way of the life of Christians on one hand and the mindset and the way of life of the world on the other that conflict is inevitable. Here's an example from Luke 16. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things and they ridiculed Jesus. So there's they're lovers of money and they ridiculed that's the persecution Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is abomination in the sight of God. So here's what happened. These Pharisees, they're lovers of money and it doesn't, money in itself isn't isn't inherently a good or bad thing, but it's their chief love. They're lovers of it. They love it more than apparently they, they desire godliness in their life. And so it's not loving something sinful. It's loving something sinfully. And so here comes Jesus and Jesus through his message and through his, his life and way of life is saying, I don't love that. And, and they inevitably feel indicted because he is saying the thing that they value isn't really a value. And so they have to then justify, that's what the text, that's what Jesus said, justify their love of money. And they do it by ridiculing Jesus, by knocking Jesus down. And so persecution, it comes first from loving something sinfully and then having to feel like you need to justify that love to Christians who are walking in a godly way with Christ Jesus and exhibiting a life that says what you, what you love most is not a high value to me. That, that's the core of Christianity, the core of persecution that comes on, on Christians. 
and Piper, I'm going to stay with him for a moment. He has this great list that kind of fleshes this idea out a little bit. He says, if you cherish chastity, your life will be an attack on people's love for free sex. If you embrace temperance, your life will be a statement against the love of alcohol. If you pursue self-control, your life will indict excessive eating. If you live simply and happily, you will show the folly of luxury. If you walk humbly with your God, you will expose the evil of pride. If you are punctual and thorough in your dealings, you will lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you speak with compassion, you will throw callousness into sharp relief. If you are earnest, you will make the flippant look flippant instead of clever. If you are spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of those around you. And I will add, if you remain calm and stand firm in the midst of political turmoil, you will expose the idols of political power. Are these the kinds of things you're persecuted for? When you think of that list, those are the kinds of things that we should, even in our reasonably safe environment today, we should be experiencing some level of persecution in those areas. And this persecution, again, if we're loving Christ Jesus and devoting ourselves to him as our chief love and other people are feeling like they need to justify their love of other things, it's not going to be limited just to the government who is gonna come after us. We read these heartbreaking verses in 1021 and the beginning of 22. Brother will deliver brother over to death. His father and, and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So in our current climate, maybe we won't be arrested and flogged for our faith. Maybe we won't be handed over uh, to death by people we know and love, but we will be, we will be backstabbed by them we will experience, uh, you know, we will experience a hindrance in in our social circles, in our political circles, in our business circles because of what we profess, and that that that's always been true to some extent, but it, it seems to be increasing these days. I mean, it happened with Jesus; he had the separation between he and his siblings. His siblings didn't like what he was doing; they tried to get him to stop doing it. But persecution will come to any desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And praise God, Jesus doesn't stop there. He gives us some tools to navigate this persecution that is going to come on his people. This is kind of the second part of the passage, how we navigate this persecution. So we are vulnerable as sheep, and then Jesus says we are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So dove seems kind of clear to me. No one's ever been tricked by a dove. We're not worried about the guile and the cunning of a dove. With a dove, it's just what you see is what you get. And that's Jesus's point. We need to be the same kind of way. We need to be what you see is what you get. If they're trying to accuse us of something, to justify their love of something other than Jesus, we don't need to add to their accusation through our immorality or hypocrisy or anything that they could bring against us. And in addition to that, we don't need to compromise the message of Jesus Christ when we say that he is our ultimate hope and our ultimate satisfaction when we are then communicating different kind of things that we're being greedy with our money, when we're being selfish with our sex, when we're being lazy with our labors. We compromise the very, the very message that we're supposed to be proclaiming. So it's imperative that we be innocent as doves as we go out and and live a life, hopefully, that is a testimony to the resurrected Jesus Christ. But we aren't just 
to be innocent as doves. We are to be wise as serpents. The King James and the, I believe the NIV, they say shrewd as snakes. And I remember the first time reading that thinking like, how do you, how do you put those two together? How do you put innocent and, and shrewd together? What does it mean to be a snake? I don't, I don't, somebody calls me a snake. I don't generally think of that as a, as a good thing. But being a snake, it doesn't mean to be cunning. It doesn't mean to be deceptive. It doesn't mean to be manipulative in any way. The way that Jesus is using it, that's why I like the way the NIV or the ESV is translating this. Jesus is saying you need to be wise. Be wise. When, when the wolves come after you, when they attack, run away, get out of the way, hide. Maybe you can slither under a rock. The way you, they, snakes can get away. They, can, they, they have this ability to elude I think this is why Jesus said in, verse, in the beginning of verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. He wants us to be able to pick our battles, to understand our goals, to be able to use the assets that we have at our disposal, things like scripture and prayer and fellowship. And when you really think about these concepts of innocence and wisdom, not only do they go together, it's really kind of hard to separate. Because if we're wise, but we're not innocent, then we're fundamentally manipulative. And if we're innocent, but we're not wise, we're just being naive. But God has designed it that we would go into the world innocent, but not naive, able to understand the dangers that were gonna surround us so that, we can, so that we can be fruitful, so that we can help be a part of his kingdom expanding here on this earth. All right, so that leaves at least me with two questions, two really logical questions. First, how, how do we know when someone is to flee and when someone is to lay their life down for the gospel? I mean, that, we see people who have done both. And I, I would say it's really up to the Holy Spirit to tell you in that moment. <laughs> and I, I love the way that the last Piper quote, but he says, let us be slow to judge the missionary who chooses death rather than escape. And let us be slow to judge the missionary who chooses life rather Let us give ourselves daily to the disciplines of the word, saturation, and obedience, which transform us by the renewing of our minds that we we may prove what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect in the moment of absolute urgency. The second question is how much persecution should I expect in this life and where we live in the here and now? Like, where's the... What's realistic for us in Orlando, Florida in the 21st century? Tim Keller, I think, gives us the best kind of guardrails that I have seen. He says that if you're never getting persecuted, something's wrong. But if you're always being persecuted, something's wrong. Other than that, it's between you and the Holy Spirit. So, and in this moment, when persecution hits its climax, when you are being handed over to the governing authorities and it may even seem like death is imminent, Jesus makes this really astounding promise that the Holy Spirit won't just be with you and give you wisdom, but the Holy Spirit is actually going to speak through you in that moment. And it makes me think about all the famous, amazing things that people like Polycarp and others said at the moment of their, their death, their, their horrible and public death. And it makes me think, okay, that, was that it? That, that was the Holy Spirit coming and giving them the words they needed, people like Stephen and others. But verses 19 and 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say or what you are... 
for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. I've been challenged more than a few times over the years about how much time I put into a sermon or a message or whatever I'm giving. And, and they would say things like, if you really trusted the Holy Spirit, you don't need to do all that. You just go and he, he gives you the words and they'll reference this text. And the problem with that is that the main promise here in this text is for a martyr at the hour of his death. <laughs> this is not a way for a, a preacher to feel better about being lazy during his week. Praise God, the Holy Spirit gives us lots of guidance all week long. What we're talking about for, for a sermon, but what's going on here is something that's specially isolated to the hour of a martyr's death. So we look at this and we think about all that Jesus is talking about. We're sheep among wolves. We're to be innocent as doves, wise as serpents. The Holy Spirit is going to be with us all the way until the end. And what we see is that Jesus is giving us the tools to endure. He said, you are sheep going into a world of wolves. The task is to endure. And here are some of the ways that you will endure. These are the tools that are going to help you navigate this world and endure till the end. This word endure, some of your translations may say stand firm. The Greek literally reads hyperstay, to stay beyond what seems normal. And that staying isn't just in persecution. That staying is with Jesus Christ through whatever it is might come into your life. And then verse 22 tells us, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but to the one who endures to the end belong some promises. And that's the last thing I want to look at in this passage. God's promises in persecution. And I, I want to highlight three. The first promise is that this persecution can actually serve to advance the mission. And I want to zoom out a little bit to see this. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 1. The persecution uh, that's coming on the church by Saul is increasing. And this is what Luke writes. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So what we're seeing is exactly what Jesus said would happen, happen. And not only does it happen, it happens in a way that, that spreads all these new believers all over the known world. And they're now, because they all have a common language in Greek, they're able to begin to share the gospel. And it's, it's multiplying. And Again, I want to say I'm not looking for persecution. I'm not wishing it on this church, but it's good for us to understand and be cognizant of the way that, that comfort can sometimes contain the gospel and to be aware that there, sometimes it's through the loss of power that the gospel actually spreads more fervently and more seriously. Global government restriction of religion has never been higher. In the, history of, in the history of the world, global government restriction of religion has never been higher than it is right now. And I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that the places that Christianity is growing the fastest in the global east and the global south is also where the restrictions are highest. And that in places like the United States where the restrictions are lowest is where we see this great decrease in number of believers. Because there's, some, there's a way that persecution actually refines our faith. It, it reinforces and purifies our faith. This watered-down Christianity that we have over the past few hundred years growing in the West that would say, I'm just not really sure that the Bible is all true. You know, Maybe some things about love and morality, but, but I'm not going to buy into the miracles. 
I don't, I don't believe in things like the virgin birth. I'm, I really don't believe that Jesus is the only way. This watered down form of a Christian teaching is really hard to find in areas of high persecution because whatever that is, it doesn't offer real hope and help when you need it most, when all of the illusions of control are really stripped away from us, all we can turn to is the real biblical Jesus. That's the first promise, that it will fuel the mission. The second promise is in verse 22. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so in this watered down kind of Christianity, people make Jesus out to be a great teacher or a good prophet or a good example, somebody whose example we should follow. Not realizing that the main thing that Jesus came to do is to save us from our sin. I think it's Jonathan Edwards. He says, without Jesus, this world is as much heaven as you will ever experience. And with Jesus, this world is as much hell as you will ever have to endure. Without Jesus, we lay in the bed that we make. We get the consequences for declaring ourselves king over our lives, for declaring ourselves as our own God in many ways, deciding that we're gonna decide what we want to do, what path we wanna go, what morals we're going to embrace. And because of that, we're gonna get what we deserve. We're gonna get God's wrath and not the grace and the love that, that we really want. And that needs to be said and it needs to be sit heavy in our lives because that helps us to understand the value of that verse 22. Those who endure will be saved. We need to be saved. Is Jesus came to lie in the bed that we made. Jesus came to bring on the wrath that we deserve and to give us all the grace and love that he deserved. That's the exchange of the gospel that brings us into the kingdom, that brings us all this persecution. And that salvation isn't, isn't for everyone who ever says, yes, I love Jesus. Jesus is being very clear that that salvation is for those who endure to the end. Which brings us to promise number three, he will come back. And here we get to, I, I think it's safe to say at least one of the top 10 most confusing verses in the New Testament. I know there are people who say that this is the most confusing verse in the New Testament. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the son of man comes. So what does that mean? I read one commentator that gave seven different options for what this means, that it, all, this, y'all will not have gone throughout all the, city, all the cities in Israel before the Son of Man comes. And none of the seven was really satisfying to me, which is why this is such a debated verse. So here, what I would commend to you is maybe the top two explanation. One is that Jesus is referring to the fall of the temple. In 70 AD, the temple fell. And some people say that, that Jesus is saying, before you get done taking the gospel to all the cities in Israel, the temple will fall. The problem with that is that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, before the coming of the son of man. So it's hard to call the falling of the temple, the son of man, the coming of the son of man. The other option, and this is the one that I would embrace, is that he's talking about his ultimate final second coming. Now I'll be the first to admit the problem with this is that it's just hard to imagine 2,000 years later, the gospel has not gone to every, every little town in Israel. So I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with that, but the way that I interpret this verse is that until Jesus comes back, there will always be work to do. 
Until Jesus comes back, there's going to be work to do for everyone. But he is coming back. And because he's coming back, we need to keep our focus on him. This is what Paul is saying when he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction. Now just let that hit you for a moment. This is Paul in prison, stoned, whipped, beat, everything. He's calling all that this light momentary affliction. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're going away. But to the things that are unseen, they're eternal. So Christians, we endure persecution not out of some penance to God. We don't endure persecution to assuage our guilt for what we've done. We don't endure persecution to be able to show everybody around us how committed we are to Jesus Christ or to God, we endure persecution for Jesus' sake. We endure persecution because we know that one day he is coming back and then at that day we are going to get to be his bride, that we will be able to experience joy that is unspeakable for the rest of eternity. You know, I think about that imagery of a bride. Weddings are a great privilege of being able to be a pastor. I got to do a, a wedding three or four weeks ago for Eric and Chrissy Wedsmark. And, uh, and I, it's funny, I realized how many weddings I used to do when I was in campus ministry and my, all my kids were used to me doing weddings. And my six-year-old, he, he's not around me doing as many weddings. And so all week I'm saying, I'm gonna do a wedding this, this Saturday. And the night before I did the wedding, he came out of his room after he should have been in bed and he came out and Angela and I were sitting in the den and he said, Daddy, I just got to tell you, I'm just going to be so sad when you remarry. <laughs> he thought that my, I, was, I was getting remarried. I was like, no, I'm not getting remarried. I'm, I'm making somebody else married. That, that's what I do as, as a pastor. He's like, I'm so happy. <laughs> Which has nothing to do with the point of a wedding. But weddings give me joy. And one of the reasons that I love weddings so much is because they are a real, I think, God-ordained and designed picture of the joy that awaits us because every bit of a wedding is orchestrated. I mean, this is, this is designed by Christians to create this kind of gospel, this gospel play that unfolds. There's purpose to the dress and the vows and the giving away and the rings, the party afterwards, all of it has purpose in the Christian story. Not least of which, and maybe most of which, is the groom standing here awaiting his beloved treasured bride. Because we have our Lord Jesus waiting at the aisle of eternity for his great treasure, his beloved bride, the church. And so Christians long before me have dared to suggest that what's going on there at every wedding is a picture of the Christian story of the hope that we have at the end of time. And people have said that the only way to maybe get the slightest glimpse of the joy that awaits us at the end of the time is to look, look at the love of the bride and a groom on the day of their wedding and say that. It's something like that is the way that Jesus loves us and the joy that awaits us. Except what we await is more intimate, more special, more powerful, and eternal. 
and I don't think people do this consciously, but some con- subconsciously, sometimes I feel like people look at that ultimate Revelation 19 wedding as some sort of prearranged marriage. Like you don't really know who you're marrying until, until you get there and you just hope for the best. That's not what's going on. This assumes we have a deep knowledge and love of the person before we ever enter into it. And it's only when we have that deep experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ do we long for his return. Do we really believe in it and long for it? If we don't have that kind of love and joy conquering us in our heart, then the persecution in this world is going to conquer us. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to read Gentle and Lowly. It's 23 chapters of what is good and beautiful about Jesus. My mom read the first chapter yesterday and she's on, on pace to finish it today. She says it's one of the best books she's ever read. She's, she reads a whole lot. Church, we will be persecuted. Some of you, for some of you, it's just gonna be a subtle nod of the nose from those around you. For some of you, you will be cut off by people that you care about. For some of you, will be betrayed by people you love. For some of you, it, it may mean that you endure a persecution that turns into prosecution and could even threaten your life. But whatever type of persecution we have to endure for following Jesus, the promise for those who endure is it's worth it. Because at the end of this life, if, if we're enduring for Jesus' sake, there is a promise of joy and love that is unspeakable and un- unimaginable and that will never end. Let's pray. God, we come to you and just again acknowledge how unable inept we are to really on an emotional level grapple with the kind of persecution that Jesus is talking about in this passage the kind of persecution that so many brothers and sisters in the global east and south endure and just we want to take this moment to lift them up to pray for their endurance that they would be able to keep their eyes on you that you would sustain them every way that they need it and that uh that they would have a deep sense that everything they're enduring is in fact just a momentary affliction when compared with the surpassing glory that awaits. And God, I pray that it prepares us for whatever it is that we have in our life, whether it's us, kids, grandkids. It, 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 it seems like things are changing. I don't know that they are, but um, God, I pray that you keep us prepared and in a way that we can endure whatever it is that comes our way that you would make us faithful and that even in the worst of times, if that's what you have ahead of us, that we would, in all we do, proclaim you as our chief love and our only hope. We pray this in Jesus' name.